Welcome to The Guide Sessions, a podcast where we talk about stories of adventure as told by the guides who experience them. I'm your host, Jim Aiken. Welcome to the show. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Jim Aiken. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your support. If you like what you hear, feel free to rate and subscribe. Before we get into the episode, I want to take a minute to talk about the Guide Sessions Consulting and Media Services. That's right. The Guide Sessions is not just a podcast anymore. The Guide Sessions is now the gateway to your next adventure. So please, contact me. Let me help you chase your dream. Additionally, the Guide Sessions Media provides a wide variety of photography and videography services. So head on over to the website, theguidesessions.com, for all the details. And while you're there, be sure to sign up to be notified of any cancellation hunts or trips to save some money on your next adventure. What's up, everyone? I'd like to start throwing like a quick listener highlight story on with each episode. So whether you're a guide yourself or you've been on a guided trip, send me a short write-up of the experience. It could be hunting related. It could be fishing related. doesn't really matter. So the story could be a success or a lesson learned. If you got something in mind, you just reach out via Instagram at the guide sessions or shoot me an email at jim at the guide sessions.com and uh, we'll get it on the show. What's up, everybody? Hope everybody had a great Christmas and uh, looking forward to the new year. It's going to be 2022 has been a crazy year. I'm pretty sure 2023 is just going to be even more crazy. But at least it's not 2020 anymore. Oh, anyway, but uh, I know a lot of the hunting season is starting to wrap up for people. uh, Unless you're probably looking to head out west somewhere to catch a coos deer or a mule deer hunt or even down to Mexico for some coos or muleys catching the rut down in there. even some javelina hunting there, uh, as as we had Andrew on last week talking about javelinas, but uh, but yeah, today on the episode we've got uh, Bob Twilliger, and I met Bob. What was it? I guess it wasn't this year. It was last year at uh, at an elk shaped camp over here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and uh, spent some time talking with him. Learned a lot with him. It was a great uh, three day seminar. And uh, just been excited to have him on the podcast for a while. When I started the podcast, I know he was one of the first people I wanted to try and get on. But with his schedule and whatnot, uh, we finally been able to get everything crossed, our, our schedules crossed anyway, simply because he just had some shoulder surgery. So he's kind of laid up. So it was a good good time to catch him. And uh, it was a great conversation, as expected. And um, we covered a whole bunch of stuff, talking everything from – in the importance of taking classes, even to just continue to educate yourself, better yourself in, in, in all aspects of hunting, fishing, because he even covers fishing, um, as well as elk techniques throughout the seasons from your, your early archery season all the way through your rifle seasons. Um, stock in the backcountry, you know, when to use it, why he sometimes uses it when he doesn't use it. Um, some good stuff on some midday elk setups to help for success um dealing with backcountry camps and camp setups as well as backcountry fishing so um, this man he's got a wide variety he's uh he got his start late in guiding 
Um, he's been doing it for the last 15 years and he's, uh, he's 66 now and he's just keeps on trucking. He ain't done. So for people who think that they're too old or can't do it, well, I think Bob's breaking the mold. So this is a great conversation with Bob Twilliger talking with me on the Guide Sessions podcast. All right, we are live, and today on the show, we've got Bob Terwilliger from Budge's Wilderness Lodge out in Colorado, where he guides backcountry elk hunts during the fall, kind of winter, and then uh, he chases a bunch of trout all over kinds of mountain streams up there in Colorado. Bob, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. Bob and I met at a at an elk shape uh, event here in PA, and yep. uh, we're finally able to catch up here and... Uh, you know, get you on the podcast. So thanks for coming on, man. Good to talk to you again. No problem. Always glad to do these things. Love, love to talk about what I love to do in life. And this is one of them for yeah. sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of know a little about you and a little about your background already, but uh, for everybody listening, uh, why don't you kind of tell us about yourself, how you got started and everything. Sure. Yeah. So first, maybe I'll give a little bit of background on me is that, um, you know, I consider myself blessed that I grew up in a family where, the hunting heritage was strong in upstate New York hunting whitetails. From the time I was about six years old, I followed my grandfather and my dad around till I was old enough to hunt myself, which back then it was 14 before I could legally carry a rifle or a bow. Um, you know, the good part about that though, a lot of the fundamentals about hunting that we like to preach and teach, you know, things like um, good hunting ethics, safety, um, you know, and then the other fundamentals, tracking game, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff, the different hunt strategies, that was inbred to me since I was a little kid. Um, you know, my grandfather also had horses, so that kind of lit the flame, and my dad grew up with horses, so that was in my blood, you know, and, um, you know, so meanwhile, I'm back there, you know, working, the young family at the time, um, hunting whitetails as much as I could. And lo and behold, in the early 90s, I got an opportunity to move to Colorado as I worked for IBM for 36 plus years. Um, and IBM was doing a lot of downsizing in New York State. Jobs were going away. And lo and behold, I got an opportunity to move to Colorado, which they didn't have to ask me twice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I grew, basically grew up with a dream of hunting elk. Um, and this was going to give me the opportunity to do it. So when I got here back then, right away, I mean, I was like a sponge. I mean, I took every opportunity to learn country, learn about elk, learn how to call, which came to me fairly quickly, at least the basics, because I grew up using a diaphragm call for turkeys. Um, you know, working on my horsemanship and my packing skills, took a lot of classes, a lot of horseback riding lessons, and also just had some really good folks that, that helped me along the way. And then the first 14 years I was here, you know, I hunted on my own. We rented horses. I packed in, um, you know, so I put those skills to work. And, you know, of course, I was learning on the fly. And uh, that actually led to how I got started um, in guiding because the area where I hunted, every year I would run into a couple of the packers there on the trail. And lo and behold, I'd be packing out my elk. <laughs> and uh, they'd be teasing me, you know, with these long legs. I was a lot younger then. They said, man, we feel sorry for that horse. He can't keep up with you. <laughs> but anyway, they saw me packing bulls most every year. And um, that led to conversations about, why don't you consider coming down to work, coming to work for us? So 
I thought about that a lot, you know, and I had a pretty high pressure job in IBM and uh, my wife and I talked about it and um, we put a plan in place and to get my kids education paid off and get them off on the right foot, how we were going to do that. And in the meantime, I started guiding using all my personal time and vacation time to guide, um, you know, and uh, my wife, she was back to school then and also working full time teaching. So, you know, it, it kind of all meshed into our long term plan. And, um, you know, actually now I'm into my 15th year of guiding. You know, I guided uh, eight years full time, seven weeks every fall you know, as much fishing as I could squeeze into my calendar. And, uh, you know, uh, as part of the first operation I worked at, you know, uh, of course, when I came in there, I was an older guy on the crew, but always worked out hard to keep myself in tip top shape. So I took it upon as a challenge to show that I belong, particularly with some of the younger guys and just worked my tail off. And after a few years there, I was the head guide and, um, also having a lot of fun, um, helping teach the guides accredited guide school where I taught the big game guiding segment of it. So in a nutshell, that's how I got started. And, um, it's been great ever since. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're one of the, I want to say like you and I are kind of outliers because you're getting started in your, in your, in you started your guide career pretty late. Yes. In life. Yes. And a lot of people, and this seems to be like a young man's game where, you know, people like yourself can out and prove it that like, okay, yeah, you can go in and have your first career and realize that there's other opportunities or something like that. You can definitely, you know, at 40 years old, 45 years old, you can go out and start guiding and have an actual true career and a testament to you about, you know, what you're 66 now, right? Yeah, I'm 66. Yep. And yeah. I'm still doing it. And you're Not still... elk full time, but <laughs> I guide a lot of fishing. As much fishing as they book, I guide it. So, and mm -hmm. I, I, you know, Elk hunting, I tend to lean towards the archery season, but I'm not opposed to guiding um, first rifle, maybe even second rifle. Third rifle is getting pretty cold, so and generally I'm hunting on my own with my son then. So. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I mean, there's definitely if people like, oh, I'm too old to do this, or you know, I can never guide because I'm not old enough. That That's truly not the case. I mean, we, you know, you're, you're living proof. I'm living proof. You know, I'm 42. Yeah. So it's like, you know, you, you can do this. It's, it's not... It's not uh, out of anybody's wheelhouse whatsoever. A absolutely. I think the key is to, you know, when you want to do it, and I'm still doing it, you, you need to focus on taking care of yourself, you know, and being as physically fit as you can be. I'm not saying that you need to be a world-class athlete, but you need to keep yourself in decent shape, try to keep your weight down and, and try to do things to get yourself ready. You know, um, those are really critical to, uh, to being able to guide to a ripe old age like like I've been doing so yeah and I think a part of it you also said it there when you're talking is that is that you took classes and like there's yeah. a lot there's a lot of times that like people might be afraid of like oh well you know I know it all or I'm too old like there's nothing wrong with going and tweaking your skills absolutely and, and learning I mean like for me I've I've got an elk for nine years and I went to an elk shape camp where they you know where you were one of the instructors and and yeah to further hone my skills on the whole trade. I mean, I didn't, I was so humble about it. The fact that like, okay, yeah, I've got it elk, but I still want to learn because there's still something that I can pick up from somebody to make me better. Absolutely. And I do that with, with the hunting end of it, the guiding end of it, with the horsemanship end of it. I just took one of my mules. I didn't go this past year because it conflicted with a fishing trip, but you know, uh, two Junes ago, I, I took my mule to a, a mulemanship clinic. Um, a guy by the name, of 
Ty Evans, who's out there on Facebook, TS Mules. I learned, you know, you go to those things. If you can come home and learn two or three new things that you can add to your arsenal, it just, it means a lot. So, and like you said, the elk camp that Dan Staten runs, and there's a lot of great resources out there on YouTube and on the web, you know, the guys from Phelps Game Call, Dirk and Jason, those are two of the most class guys you're ever going to meet that they want to help you. Mm-hmm. Another guy by the name that, that works with them a lot, Jermaine Hodge, who's a world champion elk caller. These guys are as humble as they come. And I can't tell you how much people like that have helped me along the way. And, you know, just going out and seeking it and, and, and trying to, like I said, be a sponge, learn everything you can. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, it's, I mean, information is information. A lot of times you go to those places and it's like drinking from a fire hose. But as long as you take kind of fast, good, quick notes, you're going to pull the nuggets out, you know, when you go back home and review it because things are going to right. replay in your mind. And uh, it's definitely worth So if anybody needs, you know, any kind of education, it's just, it's just like – there's nothing wrong with it. Nothing with, you know, just be that sponge. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so as far as I got so many things running through my head now that we started talking, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I guess we'll just focus on elk to start with before we get into fishing. All right. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, you say you're focused on the archery season. So kind of from like a 30,000 kind of foot view, like how does your approach and your technique to hunting elk change throughout the archery season all the way through the rifle seasons? Sure. Um, yeah. So let's talk about that. Um, you know, typically, you know, archery season, you know, in the beginning, the elk are just, their hormones are just starting kicking in. It's more of a curiosity thing. Of course they will younger bulls in particular early in season will respond to, to calls. I mean, they don't always answer, but they'll come in silent a lot. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, then, of course, as the rut picks up, they become more active. Uh, the other thing that happens nowadays, though, is the rut picks up. There's more hunters. <laughs> so yeah. that is definitely added to the challenge um, in the times that I've been hunting elk here in Colorado. It, I want to be honest, it's gotten it's gotten tougher on public land. So, I was going to say, you're, you're 100% public land, aren't you? Yeah. 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 So it's gotten tougher. But, you know, typically, you know, my strategy is, you know, you know, I'm trying to learn country or learn areas where the elk are going to be, you know, as I go into each season based on the weather conditions, you know, we have, has it been dry? Has it been wet? Like this past year it was wet. We had a lot of rain all summer. And so that generally means that the elk are going to be dispersed because the food and the water supply is dispersed. And, you know, to some degree that can make it sometimes easier to find elk each day, you know, than when they're congregated because there's a lot of country out there, but, Again, you know, it starts with scouting over the summer. And then as I get into this season, you know, you know, my strategy is I've got a game plan going into each day and um, I've got options. And of course, there's always the plan B option that you're headed to where you're going and you see something and you hear something and plans change real quick. Yeah, but, so um, a bugle no. sounds off like, wow, I didn't know they were over right. there. We're going there now. But I, I've got areas where I, 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 you know, either through scouting online or, or scouting on foot or a combination of the above, I've got areas where I expect to find elk, you know, early. And, you know, I head to those areas. I'm, I'm pretty careful. You know, I used to take the philosophy that I'd be heading in in the pitch black. And I'm not saying that I won't ever do that, but what I've learned over the years is that I kind of like to be able to see a little bit and make sure I don't need to use my headlamp. And also that I can see good enough with my binoculars so I'm not bumping stuff on my way because 
that happened to me a lot when I first started hunting, you know, but I get into these areas, big mountain bowls. And of course, you know, what I learned as I came to Colorado, some of these big mountain bowls, the elk are going to be up above you. Um, and that's where you want to be down in the dark timber or along the edges of, you know, a park, whatever, um, at first light where you can glass and look and listen. And of course, with the thermals are coming down, you don't need to worry about getting smelled. So I generally start my day in those places and I kind of hang out for a while and see what I see and see what I hear. And then, you know, and then I might hang there for maybe an hour at most, sometimes only 20 minutes. Um, and then, then I'm off and going and I've got a plan about how I'm going to work my way around that country. You know, in the mornings, of course, staying low, trying to stay a little lower, always in cover. And um, I'm glassing, you know, and uh, looking, you know, and uh, also calling, you know, intermittently, not loud. You know, I tend to let out soft location bugles in the morning and, uh, you know, work my way around that way. Uh, you know, one thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, and again, I'm talking about archery and first rifle time mm -hmm. here. It's not unusual uh, to not hear bugling sometimes in the morning, particularly in today's day and age, because these elk have gotten a lot more conservative about when they talk just because of the number of hunters in the woods and the number of people screaming at them. But what I have found in recent years is that, you know, a lot of times mid to late morning, they can fire up. And the, the reason is, is that that's when they're starting to herd their cows up and head to the bedding areas and they can get more vocal. So, you know, I'm, I'm tuning that, playing to that game too, you know, and moving around these different basins, letting out a location bugle and I get one to answer me, you know, then, then I'm figuring out using the terrain and, and keeping the wind in my favor, how I'm going to get close. Um, the one thing I don't recommend, which I think you'll hear from, from most guides and guys that have hunted elk a lot, of course, as I'm sure, you know, Jim, is that, you know, I don't, I don't keep calling to a bull if he's answering me, right? I mean, I get him to answer once. I try to get a beat on where he is. And then the next time I will call, unless I really have to maybe let out a cow call to get a little bit closer read on where he is, is that I want to get within striking distance so I can get my clients set up in a setup where when that bull comes to check me out, they're going to have a shot. And, you know, so I'll try to get into my actual setup situation before I actually start calling that bull again. You don't always get it right the first time. Sometimes you got to pick up and move and keep going, you know, particularly if they've got cows and, you know, sometimes that might mean trying to cut them off. Now, the other thing I'll talk about um, in the archery season and also the to early rifle season, you know, midday, you know, can be a downtime. Sometimes they don't, you know, typically the weather can get warm. So if I can find an active wallow, and I'm not talking about one where the water, you know, I can see they've been there and the water looks clear. I'm talking about one where I see mud splashed up on trees and it's still wet, you know, and the water's still real muddy, you know. Those are spots that I might think about hanging out in the middle part of the day because those bulls will come in and, and use that before they go bed or when they first get up in the afternoon. Um, that's definitely something I look at. Another thing that I do all the time, you know, regardless of the season, particularly if I'm having trouble finding elk is midday, I'll get up, I'll get up high where I can really see well in glass. You know, at that time being up high is a good thing. Of course, the thermals are going up. So you're above the animals. And there's a lot of times I get up there and you start picking stuff apart with your binoculars, you know, across one ridge or whatever, and you locate elk bedded, you know, it doesn't always have to be the bulls, you see cows there. And 
then you figure out, well, how am I going to get to them, you know, before darks to get a shot at them or worst case, you know, the next morning, if they're, if they're really far away, I figure out how I'm going to get there. So that's kind of how I approach um, the archery season and into first rifle. You know, one thing I'll comment on here, of course, and you understand from coming from Pennsylvania and me growing up in New York state, you know, it's a far different strategy than whitetail hunting. And one <laughs> yeah. thing you'll find with guiding is, is that, you know, people that have hunted whitetails their whole life on their first elk hunt in particular, you know, their expectations may be way, way out of whack that they're wondering why they're, you're not putting them on a stand and sitting there from, from dusk till dawn, you know, or dawn till dusk. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it is different in that light, you know, where we're on the move. A lot of times I tend not to spend time much, too much time in one area, unless I've seen a lot of sign or unless I'm seeing elk in that area, then, then I will hang. Now, as we move into the later rifle seasons, um, of course, you know, weather can be a critical ingredient. You know, if these elk have been hunted all fall and you've got dry conditions, man, that can be about as tough as it gets. But they still, you know, that time of year are going to be focused more on feeding because a lot of those bulls are worn down. They need to put fat on before winter. But ideally, I like to get some snow and cold. Um, and you're going to find in those conditions that, you know, if you get a lot of snow, the elk are going to start to migrate down into these drainages, how they migrate down into lower country. Um, but the other thing is you'll find that the window of opportunity for, for killing an animal definitely increases because those animals are focused on feeding a lot more. And, you know, like this past third rifle season here, I was hunting with my son and um, we found that the elk were laying down by nine o'clock in the morning because it was a full moon. And a lot of guys said, well, I don't like the full moon. Well, the thing was with the cold and the amount of snow that we were running into, by one o'clock in the afternoon, they were up feeding again. And they were basically <laughs> feeding all afternoon, going in the evening. So, you know, you really have to adapt, you know, to the seasonal weather conditions and the weather that you're getting, um, you know, and of course, in the, the colder months too, you know, I still am on the move. If I'm not seeing sign, I'm always on the move. But with the snow and everything, looking for fresh tracks in the snow, you can see areas where they're coming out. And then you figure out your strategy to be there at the right time and intercept them. So that's kind of a good summary of how I like to hunt the different seasons. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of here. I'm making some notes here that we're going to dive into some specifics here. Um, but uh, so as far as like what kind of what elevations are you hunting at to, to get that respect? I mean, are you because you, you mentioned kind of timberline. Are you are you pushing stuff over 10,000? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, through first rifle season, I'm hunting up to 11,000 feet a lot of times. And that, you know, that is partly due to the fact that we've got more hunting pressure in here now in Colorado than we ever had, particularly during the archery season. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily complaining that that's all bad because it's actually all, a lot of good with, in today's day and age where we need to be constantly focused on defending our, our hunting rights and stuff. It's good that we got more people out there including women going out and, and archery hunting elk, which is great. Um, but it does push the animals into more remote locations or down on private land. But uh, so typically, you know, the areas where I'm camped, I'm camped around 10,000 feet and I'm, I'm hunting up to 11, sometimes 11 to um, during the archery and first rifle. Of course, it makes it a little bit more challenging to get up there. And, <laughs> and also sometimes a lot more challenging to get them out. But I'm at the age where I don't pack quarters with bones anymore. Oh, so. smart, smart. Yeah. But uh, as far as, I mean, you kind of said you, 
multiple times there as you're kind of going through that explanation that you're constantly like on the move on the move now i know you use mules so like when you're on the move how much is that on foot or is how much is that on mules do you kind of use the mules as much as possible yeah great question so you know if i'm real remote you know my preference is to not have stock back there because stock adds work it adds time to your day to take care of them you know every once in a while something will set them off that a horse is going to whinny or a mule will bellow and I don't, I don't need that in my remote hunting camp, not to say I've never had it. So typically what I like to do is if with my mules, I use them to get my stuff in there. And then I've got a good buddy of mine that'll go and pull them out and okay. come back and get me, you know, when I need them to, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, now when you get into, you know, if I'm guiding sometimes though, you know, then having the animals can be a good thing because I'll use them to get to and from camp and save some wear and tear on my clients. You know, and that becomes even more important when you get snow on the ground. So basically, I'm using the animals to get to and from, you know, camp. And then I start my hunts from where I'll tie the stock up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, since you kind of mentioned snow again, I'll, that kind of reminded me as you were telling your story about how the snow will kind of just kind of force that migration. And I remember one year it was uh, it was first week in October and we got a, a blast of snow in the middle of the afternoon. It, it snowed like eight inches right it was just a freak blizzard that came through and we we went back out and went up to this turn the corner in this one drainage and it was just like 200 out like yeah oh like, yeah like like where did all this elk come from you know and like we yeah. just kind of stood there dumbfounded and they all looked at us and just ran like we were just like you know they saw us we saw the same like not expecting them to be there at that you know it was like two o'clock yeah. in the afternoon like what are you doing here yeah. But yeah, yeah, that was like, that was my first experience of realizing like, oh, so now like whenever we got like, oh, we're getting snow, like on Tuesday, we're getting snow on Wednesday. We're like, all right, this is going to be great news. You know, things are going to start moving, start pushing. So yeah, that's an excellent point, you know, and one of the things I've learned over the years, particularly with those colder, um, snowy rifle seasons, you know, when it's really gnarly out, I'm, I'm not talking about light snow because the animals obviously will feed in that. But when you, we get these big storms that come through Colorado and that, you know, the good news is, is that it's rare that they last a long time, you mm-hmm. know? So the best thing that you could do, my experience with guiding is, is that I keep my guys in camp until the weather breaks, because I know when the weather breaks, I want to be out there and I want to be out there all day, mm-hmm. you know, because those animals are going to be on the move. It's going to be easier to find them, easier to spot them. So, you know, after big storms is a great time to go find animals. And, and a lot of times when they're feeding like that in the snow, you can slip in you know, and kill one pretty easy if you're careful, you know, using your binoculars about when to move and, and when not to. And of course the walking can be a lot quieter too. Yeah. Yeah. As long as the top's not too crunchy. Right. But, yeah. And one of the things that is kind of to target, I don't, I can almost, I've never hunted elk in Colorado, but I'm pretty sure because where, where we hunt, it's 30 miles South of Colorado border, still in the Rockies, you know, yep. um, we call it like skunk cabbage. And like, it seems like the elk don't really eat it until it gets covered in snow. And that's like when they go to, that's like their go-to food source. So like one of the things that we always yeah. hit, like soon as it, like, as soon as it drops snow, we're like, okay, where's the biggest skunk cabbage patch? Cause that's where we're going. Right. Yeah. No, that's, we have that here. And that brings up a great point too, about with snow, you know, my strategy hunting around snow, snowy conditions when we get a lot of snow is that you want to focus, um, 
your efforts on on stuff that faces south and southwest okay um the stuff where the sun hits and it's, it's going to expose that feed a lot quicker you know they may go still go bad in the north facing stuff because i mean elk can the cold doesn't seem to bother them at all you know but that that south uh southwest even west facing stuff slopes are really good the other thing that really can be good and this was uh from two years ago um you know, you find conditions, even when you've got a lot of snow, in fact, we saw this this third rifle season too, a lot of times you get these high mountain parks, they're still up, you know, I don't know if they're 11,000 feet, but they're every bit of 10.5, 10.8, but maybe the wind keeps them snow free. Those animals will hang there to the very end because they know they're safe there. It's hard to get to them with all that snow and they'll hang in those areas and they'll feed there until, you know, more snow drives them down. So those are great places to go look for elk when you start to get weather and snow. Mm. Yeah. Good points there. Um, so kind of talking the crowds that, that you're seeing and the increase of numbers, have you ever used, or are you starting to use other hunters like to your advantage? Like kind of like, okay, you're going to see how they're camped here. Or people are moving in and that's going to change how you're going to change your plan. Cause you say you've got an ABCD plan. So do you always take other hunters in, into account? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't I don't really want to run into other guys, you know. It's yeah, nobody to wants to do that, but yeah, that right. happens. You know, and, um, but I definitely take into, you know, over time as you, and that's one of the things that's probably important. I mean, you know, there's guys, of course, like we know, like Dan Staten, that that guy can go hunt country cold every year and kill elk. I mean, mm-hmm. he's amazing. But, you know, in general, because I live here, you know, I, these places that I hunt, I spend a lot of time in them and I know what areas tend to attract hunters. And then I focus on, I'm trying to get into an area behind them, you know, or even, even sometimes below them, you know, whatever, trying to take advantage that because those animals are, are, are just naturally going to migrate to where they're not getting pressured, you know, mm-hmm. or escape routes to private land. That can be another really great tactic. You know, if you know an area, particularly during the rifle seasons where, it's going to get hit hard opening day. You know, you go getting those escape routes where they're going to funnel down to private land. You know, you can see a lot of animals and kill a lot of elk that way. Yeah, it sounds smart there. It's kind of like, you know, hunting whitetails in PM. I'm pretty sure you saw it in New York that, like, you know, a lot of times I don't hunt where all the sign is. I hunt where the, I try and figure out where the escape route is because once that first yes. crack of the rifle, everything is going somewhere. And right. You just find that escape route and then you just, you're just sitting there waiting for them. Yep, Absolutely. It's one of the best ambush. It's like a universal ambush thing that a lot of people don't realize. Like <laughs> oh, every, yeah. everybody's so focused on the sign. And I want to go to the sign. I want to go to the sign. But like what you got to think about is, is as soon as they start getting pressured, where are they going to go? Yeah. And that rifle season, that can really be the name of the game, you mm-hmm. know? So. Yeah. So as far as your plans and change, as we're talking about plans, you know, Henry and anything like, being constantly hit, hit by people but like do you ever use like the same approach to a certain meadow or like have like the same plan like to kind of use like over and over again like i know there's oh, yeah. times where all like if i hunt a certain meadow that i'm going to approach that meadow pretty much unless the wind does something completely funky i'm going to approach that meadow the same way every time just because of being there i know i'm not going to be seen i'm going to be able to sneak in and peek over a rock or something like that yeah, absolutely. I do that a lot. And, and what that comes from, that comes from knowledge of the country. 
where you know where the wind direction is going to be at different times of the day and where the thermals are going to be and also where you got cover and where the animals like to feed so i definitely use that approach a lot and i've got you know i've got these routes that i hunt the same routes after year after year and i kill elk year after year and you know if they're not in one place i know the next place i need to go look and um so that definitely is a strategy that's key yeah i mean that's but like i said that comes through a lot of just doing it over and over again with the experience so for you like how long did you, did, did it take you to kind of figure that pattern out um you know hunting on my own it you know, I'm going to say, even though I spent a lot of time backpacking and fishing in some of the country I hunted, you know, it took me a few years, a few years, you know, two, three years before I started catching on. And then, um, and then, you know, of course, when you start guiding and you start spending seven weeks every fall on an area, and then, you know, the, as much as I thought that I knew the area that I worked in, the outfitter that I worked for, he operated there for 30 years. And that yeah. guy was, he was a, he was an encyclopedia of knowledge. I mean, stuff. I learned places that I overlooked, you know, from him or from his son-in-law that guided from, from a young age. So, you know, uh, but definitely the more time you spend, the more, the more you're going to learn. I would say another thing that's critical, um, that you learn with time and, and some of it, sometimes I use game trails. Sometimes I use real trails. Sometimes I just use terrain, but learning the easy way in and the easy way out is really important to these areas so that you know how to get in there the quickest and how to get in there without disturbing the elk. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of that takes time and experience. And that's a lot of that stuff sometimes needs to happen during the off season. If you can get on the ground and scout. Yeah. And, and I think you kind of glazed over a good point there. It kind of goes back to being a sponge and not being afraid to learn is that, you know, you learn from your employer, you know, has been in there for, 30 years yes. you know like for me i don't have being in pennsylvania and guiding new mexico like i don't have the liberty of going out and summer scouting and walking the property you know i kind of show up and like okay where are they kind of deal you know right. how, how you've been approaching and even my first couple of years guiding there was a lot of like okay when i went to this area this is the route i took and he'd be like oh no no you don't want to do that you want to go over here and give me just a reference of different landmarks that this is how you should be approaching from this side. So it's all yeah. about being that sponge and, and just being open to, to learning is, is a huge part of, you know, a big step of, you know, becoming a better guide throughout the, throughout your years. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing I'd say for those that may get into this older too, you know, um, I've learned a ton from guys that are younger than me, kids that are younger than my kids, you know, um, I got one buddy that I've hunted and guided with a lot over the years who grew up here in Colorado, you know, on the Western slope. And he has been invaluable to me in learning techniques about how he hunts elk and, and how to approach certain situations and read terrain. So, you know, there's always somebody you can learn from no matter what your age is, older or younger, you know, doesn't matter. Even, even less experienced, you know, they might have, they might have something that you haven't. Yeah. Used. They just might have one little golden nugget that you don't, that you don't Absolutely. know about. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things I want to kind of go back and touch on a little bit is calling and you, and you kind of mentioned it. I was one of those people when I first started out, you know, cause I, I'm coming from Pennsylvania hunting whitetails and all of a sudden <laughs> I'm thrown in the guiding elk, you know, and you get, and you get bugling and then they're responding and you just get excited. You're like, Oh my God, this is working. They're talking, they're talking. But <laughs> yeah. then you realize like, 
well, man, I'm just telling them where I am every time. And I just, yes. and I could never yes. close the distance for like that first couple of years. I'm like, what yeah. am I doing wrong? And I realized, you know, like talking to people like, well, you're just calling them too much because you yes. know, once, once you, once you call them and locate them, just shut up. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. It's fun to talk with them, but right. when you're trying to close a distance on them, if you're just announcing your presence as you're coming storming through the oh, woods. Oh, absolutely. Because with those bulls, particularly if they got cows, oh, yeah. like you, you know where you are, they're yeah. they're going to keep answering you because they're they're bringing their herd with them but or their harem with them, but they're yeah. not, not necessarily coming to you. Yeah, so. I mean, unless you can run as fast as an elk and charge the herd, it makes sound right. like a real aggressive, you know. But but yeah, once, once you get them located, figure out your plan. You know, don't keep them talking. If they're talking on their own, just use that. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's another thing that votes well to learn country, you know, is that, as you know, you know, I mean, when I see elk or I hear elk, you know, these places that I hunt nine tens out of 10, I know how I got to get to them. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that, that means a lot, you know, I mean, of course the wind can change that time of day, you know, but then, you know, the other thing is I don't force the issue, right? I don't, you know, there's times I will take risk, but I don't take risk with the wind, you know, the wind, uh, you know, and, the wind, you, you're going to lose that one every time. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, there's nothing beating that wind whatsoever. Right. Yeah. So I guess um, kind of touching back on mules a little bit, why do you like uh, using mules versus horses? Um. Well, you know, I, I've had some really good horses. I actually love them both. But, I, you know, I just – over time, I've worked with a ton of both. Um, and I want to say that mules, I mean, first of all, I'm attracted to the personality. I mean, they do have <laughs> you like stubbornness. Is it... <laughs> oh yeah. They, they mess with you. In fact, I'll just take a couple of minutes. I, the first, first, uh, year I guided, we had this mule named Decker and, um, I went to saddle him the first morning in the dark. Of course, you're catching stock at three 30 mm-hmm. and I go to throw the saddle on him, put the pad on, ready to throw the saddle on. And all of a sudden he steps on my foot. So <laughs> I'm thinking, well, you know, it's me. I'm inexperienced, you know, and uh, I just, I got to watch my feet. Next morning, I put the pad on and he goes to step on my foot again. And I thought to myself, he didn't get me this time, but he came close. He just kind of pinched the edge of my hunting boot. Uh-huh. This might be intentional. The third morning, he goes to do it again. <laughs> and I was ready. So I knew, I knew. But so mules have a lot of personality. But why I like them in the backcountry is, is that, you know, and that is, this isn't saying they're looking out for you necessarily, but a mule will not do something where they're going to jeopardize themselves, where horses sometimes can lose their cool. That's number one. Um, number two is that you're going to find that most mules, their foot placement on the trail is a lot more precise. So they're sure footed. Some of that might be the design of, you know, their hooves, but you know, my one mule, she's, I, I watch her stepping around the rocks and she is absolutely amazing. She will never trip or stumble on anything where horses do a lot of times, you know, and, and sometimes in places where you're saying, what are you doing? You fool, you're going to get me killed, you know? Yeah. And they're tripping all of a sudden. They, they, they don't pick up their front foot enough and they stumble. And then you're like, you're not half right. paying attention. You get like half jostled in the saddle somewhere else. And it's just jumping you around. Yeah. And then the third thing is mules, horses will eat stuff that will make them sick. A mule won't do that. You know, so they, they definitely have some some strengths. Now, of course, the thing of it is that I'm going to tell you that mules aren't for everybody because they will they will test you and they will test your patience. And, you know, as I'm sure you see in your operation, there, there's 
outfitters that they have some outstanding mules that you can put anybody on mm-hmm. and they take care of them. You know, these people are pure passengers on, on these animals and mules take care of them. But, you know, to get them to that point, it can take longer to get a mule to that point than it can to get a horse simply because just the learning curve can be longer and it does take a lot more patience. And I guess probably the last thing I'll say is that I've enjoyed the challenges of working with mules. I mean, my one big guy in particular, you know, when I got him, he was quite green. I mean, he wasn't going to buck me off, but he tried to take off of me numerous times. And um, I have learned a ton through working with that animal. And, uh, you know, now he's, he's just getting better every day. You know, he's, he's like a dog, you know, he sees me and he, he's coming to me, you know, <laughs> we go to get in a, get in a trailer. I don't have to step up there. I, I throw the rope up on his back and he jumps in. And then, and then once he's in, I close the door and I tie him from the outside. I mean, they're amazing animals once you get them to where you need them to be, you know? So, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I compared like, like as you're talking about that, I was envisioning like a dog, like you're like, all right, like, seems like you grab their leash. They know they're going on a walk or something like that. Yeah. And they get all excited. So I never, right. I never knew that mules could be like that where you can, Train them to the point, and they're going to get to the point where they're excited and be like, "Okay, you're walking over to them, got your lead, tie them up, and they're okay. Let's hop in the trailer and go for, you know, go for a hike or whatever like that." So that's pretty cool. Right. Yep. Yeah. So as far as because you mentioned something about horses will eat something that kind of you know would get them sick and they don't know it. I know there's a one instance where we had a horse kind of get colic one time, and. I had no idea what it was. I'm, you know, I didn't grow up around horses and my really only horse experience is what I've done there at the outfit. And, um, so that was like, for me, like it was a scary moment of like, I'm glad somebody there was, you know, obviously the outfitter, but like they knew what to do, you know, just keep right. walking and walking. So yes. I, I can, I can kind of see how that is an advantage using mules where like, they're not going to, you're not going to have like that risk of that. They, know, I guess I've never seen a mule colic, but I, I, I want to say that I've heard of that happening, but I think it's probably the, the, the chance of it is probably less, mm-hmm. um, you know, but yeah, you're right. The colic can be a really scary thing. And of course, you know, there's some stuff that you should carry with you. And most outfitters have that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you're right. You don't want to let them lay down and start rolling because that's when their intestines can get twisted and then you've got an animal that's going to end up having to be put down. Yeah. And then when you're, you know, when you're 13 miles back in the middle of nowhere, then it's right. Yeah. yeah. It's not, good. it's not right. fun, not fun at all. But, uh, so speaking about being back in, I mean, cause you mentioned with the outfits you work for now you know, yeah. there, you have a lodge, but then you also have some areas in, in the early season where you kind of do like a, like a, a back country back style tent. So, right can you kind of describe that setup and like, is it like wall tents? Is it like one man tents? Like how's that, how's that set up for you? Well, you know, the the typical outfitter setup um, is going to be wall tents, you know, and they're packed in, you know, late summer, unless they're, they're dual purpose fishing camps. You know, we've got some of those, but we've got, we got a number of uh, backcountry camps anywhere. The furthest one is probably almost Oh, it's probably a good three hour horseback ride from the lodge. And, and the lodge is right on the edge of the wilderness boundary itself. But, um, you know, it's going to be a wall tent. So it's got a wood stove. It's got a two burner hot plate, you know, the camp chef hot plates that runs off propane mm-hmm. cots, you know, uh, some kind of insulated pad to sleep on all your cooking stuff is there. Um, some of the more elaborate camps would even have a camp cook. Um, maybe even a camp jack if it's a bigger camp. You know, somebody that's responsible for getting water each day, purifying it, cutting firewood, 
that kind of stuff. So that would be the most elaborate kinds of camps. And those are really quite comfortable. Um, I've had the luxury of working in some really good ones. You know, it's a lot of fun. And um, nice thing is, it's a great way to get away from a lot of people that way. Um, also, you, you, you eliminate the, the time each day of riding a horse in and out to your hunting area, typically. Um, and now, you know, I think one of the things that you know, that I want to discuss with the guys that I work with. And, uh, you know, I've discussed it in previous operations is particularly archery season could even be first rifle. You know, we got the technology out there and we'll, you know, we may talk about this later with, you know, the different, how gear and the technology stuff has evolved, but mm -hmm. you know, some of these TP style tents that you can use a titanium wood stove, I actually personally have one of those. And when I hunt archery and when I hunt first rifle, that's what I'm using because the tent weighs like maybe five pounds. The stove weighs maybe five pounds. So if you got a group, you know, you can split that stuff up and split up the gear and you've got a really comfortable camp, even if the weather gets gnarly, you know, mm -hmm. so that can be another great way um, to hunt in these remote locations. Of course, typically that's going to mean, you know, eating uh, pre-prepared meals like, you know, mountain house, uh, you know, peak one, stuff like that. But I find most hunters, you know, that, that's that's not an issue and i i think that's i'm certainly sure that more and more outfitters are starting to use those type of setups because they can be temporary camps where you know you use those for duration and and move them you know you're you know unless it's a designated campsite you you know two weeks is the max anyway so that you can have a camp mm -hmm. uh, but as long as it's in their permitted area they could they could certainly use that strategy and i i think that's a great one particularly in today's day and age yeah yeah i mean we have we have a, a little spike camp that we set up for people we got the main lodge but it's it's for people we, we we entertain it to the people who want that true like out you know right back country feeling i mean it, you know it's six miles by horse you know from the main lodge and we we find that some people are willing to stay there all week but some people are just like all right i just want to go spend one night out in spike camp <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah i hear you yeah it depends on the clients and you know of course good outfitter is going to give them the opportunity for the type of hunt they want and steer them in the direction you know based on that hunt you know if you're going to a lot of these hunts that are lodge hunts you know i'm not saying that you won't be successful in archery because you certainly can be and, and many of them particularly mm -hmm. early in the season once the elk haven't been pressured much but as the season wears on those animals migrate to more remote places and um you know getting away can be a good thing yeah so you kind of mentioned about how you you're running a tp with a stove so kind of thinking back to like year one when you started guiding like has the camp changed at all a little bit like setup or you know um or approach to setup in any way like compared from then until now um you know the wall tents i would say not that's pretty much a standard strategy of course you know with wall tents the other thing to be concerned about is um you know snow in the rifle seasons you know uh, some outfitters use internal frames and then others will cut poles and stack them and stand them up somewhere and use the same uh, down timber poles year after year you know personally i i, I like that strategy a lot um, i'm not a huge fan of internal frames simply because while they're, they're easy to set up, they offer the ability to hang stuff inside because of the poles are inside. Mm -hmm. the, the side rails, you know, when you get a lot of snow and it starts weighing down, it won't slide off the tent and they will eventually collapse. I prefer an external pole set. But I'm going to say with uh, 
Wall tents, I haven't really seen that much change. You know, it's been pretty standard equipment with the stoves and the cook stoves. And, you know, perhaps there's lighter weight cots. There's better ground pads now than there ever was. You know, you got to spend more money. But there's some stuff, obviously, that will pack up the size of an algae bottle and uh, keep yeah. warm in all this weather. You know, I mean, you know, Thermarest, Big Agnes, they make some great stuff. But, uh, you know, where I think you, you do see the change, though, is that where a lot of the remote spike camps used to be, you know, coal camping, you know, and I'm not saying I still do a little of that too, but with these new TPs that are so lightweight and it takes a little bit of practice to learn how to set them up right, but not, not much. Mm -hmm. um, these wood stoves, you know, you've got a camp that you could use throughout the whole season um, and, you know, they will shed snow pretty good. You know, sometimes you got to knock them off a little bit, but they're, they're really game changers the way I see it, you know, um, some of this new camping equipment that's come out and there's some, some great companies out there making some good stuff, you know, of course, Kafaru and Seek Outside, um, they're two of the more brands that people know the boat mm -hmm. best. They also can be the most pricey, but um, there's another outfit called Pomaly and I actually have one of their stoves, titanium, and it is really slick. It's super strong, super easy to set up. And they make some great lightweight shelters that tend to be a little less money. Their stove is pricey, but that's the price of titanium that's driving that up. Oh yeah, yeah. It's funny they talk about ways to shed snow. I I remember a few years back we had just got like uh, we ran teepees for the longest time, and then before we got a big right. wall tent. Yeah. And one of the reasons we went to the wall tent was because we had in the middle of our teepee, you know, we had um you know, just a wooden pole, you know, cut the tree down, whatever, and stuff it up on the top that in one of the big snowstorms that came through, well, it punched the, the support pole right through the top of the teepee. There was so much oh, weight wow. and we walk up and there was, and there's the cots there and it looked like bodies <laughs> laying there. Like, you know, yeah. we're like, yep. we're like, well, well, I guess, uh, we got to fix this. So like our, our remedy was, uh, um, we took a, a pot, you know, one of the cooking pots and put it on top of the, uh, the the wooden support pole and that was just wide enough that it was that it didn't fold over the hole so right that was like sometimes yeah. you just gotta like like okay well, well. you know he, he, here's a trick for that that i learned and, and actually this was this was i i didn't learn this from the tent manufacturer i learned it from uh somebody out on youtube you know i mean youtube's a great source of mm -hmm. knowledge um you get yourself a tennis ball and cut it in half and you put your pole, the top of your pole, put that tennis ball over top of it and put that up to your roof. That That's a game changer in terms of securing that tent roof where, you know, it takes a lot of stress off mm. um, and provide some cushion. Of course, if you get enough snow, I suppose anything is going to come down. Yeah, but, I mean, weight's weight. Know, yeah, it's pressure, but yeah. Right. It's a good way to distribute it and not have like a, a, a hard edge and that way it just kind of just rounds it off yes. and spreads the pressure. Yes, it does. Yep, Absolutely. Yeah. Good tip there. Good tip. Um, as far as some other things, kind of like looking back in the past, um, I mean, we've kind of already kind of covered a little bit on some hunting strategies and things like that, but like, can you remember back to like when you very first started till now, like, like some key things that you've kind of developed that, that you, you look back and like, man, I can't believe I kind of did that kind of thing. And then you've kind of grown and developed in that sense. Um, yeah. In terms of, yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, one of the things that I'll say is that, uh, you know, 
when you go into these things, you know, you're particularly when you first start out guiding, you're, you're gung ho, mm -hmm. and you know what your abilities are, and you know the success that you had. And I, I had a, a good amount of success when I was hunting on my own, and um, but you know, the one thing you learn very quickly as a guide is that you, your ability to hunt the elk is limited to the physical ability and skills of your client. Mm. Really need to keep that in mind. Um, that's something that is is really important. You know, and then the other thing is, is like I said, I, I, uh, I keep myself in good shape so I can continue to do this. But, uh, you know, as much as you preach physical fitness to some of these folks, when they come out there, they're not used to altitude. They're not used to the, the terrain. And, um, you know, you got to be careful the first day or two that you don't, you don't run your client into the ground and they actually quit on you. I've seen that happen you know, with myself, I've seen it happen with other guys where they push people too hard, too fast. You know, a better strategy is to, you know, go into that week with a, where the first couple of days, you know, you go a little bit easy and kind of build on that as the week goes on. And you'll find most guys can step up to that challenge. You, at the end of the week, they're proud of themselves the way they push their physical limits. Mm -hmm. And then probably the last thing I'll say that I've learned is that, um, you know, the more you do this, and I'm not saying in all cases, because some guys will use a guided hunt as an ability to learn and eventually evolve to a drop camp where they're hunting, using an outfitter's facility, but hunting on their own, or maybe go to do it yourself. But a large population of these people that go on guided hunts, there's a reason. You know, they don't have the physical abilities. They don't have the skills. Um, they love the experience. They want to do it, but they are dependent on you or your operation to do that. And you need to realize that. And, um, you know, take that into account when you take these people out. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I always try and do, you know, because when I, when I show up for my first week guiding, you know, I'm, I'm still getting adjusted to the altitude, you know? Right. And so like the first few days, it's like, I have that, that common bond with the hunter who's also just getting adjusted. Like, okay, we're going to hike, right. but like, hey, we're going to go to that tree. And then like, you know, that's only 20 yards away hiking up the hill, but like, okay, you got to set like those mini goals, you know, you don't just yeah. go like, okay, we're going to go to the top of that mountain. We're like, okay, let's hike to that tree. All right, let's go hike right. to that tree. And it's just taking those baby steps. And so that way you're not like overwhelming them of like, okay, we're just going to go and we're not going to stop. Right. Yep. You know, you know, and then the, probably the other thing I thought of as we're talking here is that there is no doubt about it that as a guide, you feel a tremendous amount of pressure to, deliver a shot out. Oh yes. Yep. A tremendous amount. Sometimes you, you, you have a lot of pressure and stress just trying to find animals in, in, on public land, right? Mm -hmm. You can run into that. And, um, you know, the key thing to remember there is you can't let that get you down where you spoil the hunt for your hunter. You've got to stay upbeat. You've got to stay positive. As those of us that have hunted elk before, you never know when that opportunity is going to arise. You want, you want your hunter mentally ready for when that opportunity surfaces so that they don't miss out on a, on a great opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 it's funny that you talk about pressure and it's just, it's, it, it's always there in the back of your mind guiding. And like, you just kind of have to realize that, okay, I, I still need to make this entertaining. I still need to make it fun, but realize that the pressure is there. Yes. And I know one thing for me, like as soon as that triggers pulled that elk's on the ground, like all that pressure just like goes away and you're just oh, like, yeah. Oh, 
Yes. Or, or, or the other one, you know, I mean, I've had this happen before where, you know, I was actually hunting in this remote camp and uh, it was new to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew kind of where to go, but it was new to me, you know. And so I'm feeling a ton of pressure, you know. And, you know, first morning we're looking and we're not seeing anything. We're not seeing any sign. And all of a sudden I keep hearing this bugling in the distance. And I, I went over there, you know, and I just kept it was a long ways away. And I said, well, let's just keep going that way. You know, and we got over there and the bugle kept getting louder and more frequent and different bulls. And first day I stumbled into it. There was about a hundred elk and man, it was just like the best feeling in my heart because I said, now I got something to hunt all week. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. my guys were charged up, you know, so that's another example of a, a good feeling, you know, when, uh, yeah, you no, find them and you're like, okay, they're here. This is where yeah, they're gonna be. They're here, and now you can now you can start to go to work. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely finding them is number one. Getting them on the ground right. number two for sure. Yeah. So yeah. kind of talking in that in that guide hunter relationship, um, in your experience, what have you found? Like when it really comes down to crunch time, and you know you've just you know, hiked the mountain and they're all amped up. The bulls are bugling in their face. Kind of like, how do you help your hunters through and stay calm in that situation? Do you have anything? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great, great question. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I'm preaching to my guys, um, you know, from the night before the hunt even starts is, you know, I like to refer to it as a mental checklist and within that mental checklist, you know, I talk about, you know, always being ready, always being upbeat, having your mind around the fact that, you know, can step out anytime because it can happen. Um, actually killed my bull that, that way this year <laughs> on the last day of the hunt. Um, you know, but then just as importantly, when you get into those areas, you know, talking about the aspect is when I go and we get set up, you know, you direct your hunter where to go. The first, you know, the first few things you want to do, you want to, you know, based on where the elk is and what direction they might come from, you want to assess your shooting lanes. You want to take some readings with your rangefinder to know how far that animals is going to be when they come into it. You know, you want to be thinking about your draw points, you know, as that animal comes in, you know, oh, when he, if he goes behind that tree, that could offer me an opportunity to draw or, or pull my rifle up, whatever, and being in position when that animal arrives, you know, and then the last thing, and th- this is where a lot of opportunities are blown to is that what you're getting at that mental checklist around the fact that once I know that I'm going to shoot that animal waiting for the right opportunity to shoot, taking into account how that animal is standing, you know, before I shoot that I think about the trajectory of the arrow or the bullet to make sure that it is going to be a good, clean, quick kill. Um, you know, and, uh, along with that, you know, once you know, you're going to shoot the animal, Forget about looking at his antlers. Forget about how he's going to look over your fireplace. You know, just be honed in on the spot where, he, you know, when he gets to that you're going to shoot. And then when you actually get draw that weapon, the spot on that animal and making sure, you know, is, you know, and that the trigger control is controlled, you know, where you're not just yanking the trigger. Um, you know, that is really a key thing. And putting this together and that mental checklist actually that's something that if i'm talking to hunters even before they come to the operation before the season you know you're talking to these guys over the summer these are things you need to start thinking about when you're practicing you know and um 
really instilling that into their head. So the mental checklist is huge. Yeah, 100%. I, I can think of a couple instances where I had my hunters come in and they, uh, you know, they actually shot and missed. And I just kind of look at them and be like, so uh, what happened? <laughs> like, like, like you're like, it happens, you know, like, like, I'm like, do you know what you did? And, and the, the both instances, they were like, man, I just stared at his rack and I was, I, I was imagining him on the wall. And I was like, yeah. I was like, man, you stay in the game, stay engaged. You know, yeah, or they get so excited. They yeah. shoot prematurely or, or, you know, the other thing that frustrates me, of course, as a hunter is, I mean, one of the reasons I love to hunt so much is I enjoy the elk meat is, is somebody make a poor shot because they rushed it mm-hmm. or they didn't wait for the animal to turn, you know, and that can result in either a bad hit where you don't recover the animal or, you know, perhaps almost as bad as where I've seen guys shoot elk right smack through both front shoulders and you end up having to almost throw the whole front elk, half of the elk away because with some of these big calibers in particular, you know, it just blows up, you know, and yeah, say, yeah. Oh, just a little bit more precision and a little bit more focus. You know, you got, you know, you got a lot more meat to go home with you, you know? Yeah. So to touch on one of the things that's popping ahead is a little bit of bullets and things like that in size of cartridge, like in your experience, have you ever come across any, any caliber that, that you feel is better than others when it comes to rifle hunting? You know, I'm going to, the, the honest answer to that is, I mean, a lot of guys feel bigger is better, but I'm, I'm not necessarily a component of that. I think the most important thing is your performance with that weapon. I mean, I know guys that, you know, hunted elk and they killed a lot of elk with a 308. Mm-hmm. You know, for years I hunted elk out here with a 30 out six, you know, of course, growing up, you know, they say use 180 grain bullet. Well, I dropped down a 165 grain bullet and I shot elk out to over 400 yards with that thing. All one shot kills. Mm-hmm. So I, currently I'm using a seven millimeter shooting 150 grain bullet, you know, shot placement and your ability to put that shot where you need to put it is, is the biggest um, thing, you know, caliber you know obviously there's certain performance of certain calibers that they shoot flatter you know over longer distances and stuff but you know again that's going to depend on your skill too because just because the rifle will do it doesn't mean you can do it you know a guy get a, a 300 mag and they're shooting 180 grain bullet and they say well i can shoot 400 yards with this and carry a lot of energy downfield well that's true but if you can't if you can't shoot that 300 mag you know because of the recoil you know or you're just not competent out the 400 yards you know just because the rifle can do it doesn't mean you can do it so yeah it's skill level and and your confidence in what you're using i think is is the biggest variable to me oh yeah that, that, the confidence plays in so much you know yeah in, in in everything you know we haven't touched on fishing but like confidence in fishing and in, in, in your setup as long as you're confident in what you're using that's going to elevate your, your focus and your concentration in that moment. Just knowing that right. this, I know how this is going to work. I know what I'm going to do. I know what's going to happen. And just, it just ups your game, ups your level in so many different ways. Yes, absolutely. And that that's true, obviously with rifle and with, with archery. Too, oh yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, and there's great equipment out there. You just, you just need to take the time to learn how to use it or get with somebody that can help you. Um, you know, shooting longer distances, that's, there's, there's an art to that, but there's a lot of guys that, you know, particularly in today's world that they're highly skilled at it. And 
you go spend a little time with them at the range, you can improve. It just, it just takes time and, and doing it. So, yeah, like I, I've had people shoot rifles and they're like, Oh, well, I've shot at 400 yards. I'm like, okay, how many times have you shot for? Oh, I shot it once and I hit it. And I'm like, okay, you shot once at 400 <laughs> yeah. yards. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and where'd you get it? You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. where'd you get it? Yeah. Okay. You shot, you, all right. You shot once at 400 yards and it was on target. I was like, and then I'm like, okay, you've never done it enough. You know, like, okay, in my head, I'm like, okay, we just ran up a mountain and now you're going to try and shoot 400 yards. You're breathing heavy. Your heart's, your heart's pounding through your ears. Right. You know, like, <clears throat> okay, you're not shooting 400 yards at this elk. I'm limiting you to like 300 or 250. Yeah. And, and that's an assessment you need to make as a guide when you mm -hmm. take people out too. Sometimes there's, a, with archery, generally, I always had the ability to see people shoot um, in camp. Um, mm -hmm. And I would make my judgment with the rifle. Sometimes, you know, I would need to talk to guys and, you know, use my feeling gut feel about, um, you know, whether I, how far I would let that individual shoot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's always that conversation you have to have is like, okay, how far are you comfortable shooting? How far have you shot? You know, Cause you never know what's going to happen. You know, right. You know, obviously. Now, the one thing that can rein that in a little bit and make it easier on the guides is that, you know, and the one outfit I worked for, he, he instituted this because we were getting, you know, quite a few hits and not, not able to recover them, despite we spend sometimes days looking, um, you know, as a draw blood policy can, can rein guys in. Oh yeah. That they know that if they shoot something and you're not able to recover it, it's within the outfitters rights to say your hunt is complete. Yeah. That, that, that can be a game changer, you know? Um, and you'll see a lot of operations do that. Oh, yeah, we, we do that same thing. And a lot of times when people like, man, I really like that elk, you know, and like we just can't go any further, you know, just terrain or something like that or daylight. And right. they're like, should I shoot? And, I'm, and I always be like, well, how confident are you? And they're like, Haha. and I'm like, well, if you draw blood, you're done. And they're, right. like, and they're like, all right, I'm not going to shoot. Let's wait till tomorrow. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep, exactly. Sometimes the right thing to do is come back the next day. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done that a lot you know, both on my own and with clients. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. I'll pull them back out. Um, so as far as like, as we're talking about hunters and things like that, do you see any like common themes or common, I don't want to call them mistakes, but just common occurrences that like you see that you wish your hunters would come to you more prepared with or anything like that? Um, whether it be shooting or fitness or anything like that, like it's something. Fitness, fitness certainly can be a big one. Um, you know, and shooting skills can be a big one too, you know, and then you've got, then, then you've got more, both of those can, can make your job a lot more challenging. So yeah, absolutely. I've seen, I've seen that happen. You know, um, the other thing that I'll say is that, you know, there are some times where you can deal with difficult personalities, you know, I mean, I'm going to tell you that 90, 98, 99% of the guys that I've guided over the 15 years I've been doing this, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, some personalities didn't challenge me at moments, but, you know, most of the people were really good people. They were fun people to spend a week with or days with whatever mm -hmm. guidance. But you can get these individuals that will challenge you and, 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 and you know, the kinds of things that you got to worry about are safety, right? I mean, I had a guy one time that, our policy was you weren't smoking when you were on our, when you were riding stock. And I had a guy, I asked him, turned around, he had a cigar lit and, um, he, uh, 
you know, I told, asked him to get down and put it out and I got down off my mule and I helped him off, put this cigar out, you know, 15 minutes later, riding down the hill, I smelled the cigar again. I had to get down off my mule. And I, I said, sir, I said, you're going to need to walk back to camp. And I put the cigar on. <laughs> I led his mule and, or his horse and he walked back to camp. And the first thing I did when I got back down to base camp, I went and told my, you know, the outfitter who I was working for, the owner, and I informed him. I said, hey, this guy's probably going to come and see you, but here's what happened. Safety issues as far as firearms right. can be another one, you know, or you get guys that as much as you tell them, and this is, you know, this is an issue for two reasons. Um, you know, when you get guys set up in a calling situation, you know, you get these guys that think that they're cute and they're going to sneak in on that animal. <laughs> well, that can create two issues. A, they get lost. Right. Or B, if you've got two people there, you know, all of a sudden you could very quickly, depending on where that animal goes, you could have a safety concern where somebody could even get shot. So, mm. you know, there's there are those situations, too. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree on, on both of those aspects. I mean, especially with the. Uh when you got multiple hunters in, in a calling situation where you got one set up, you as a guide, you know where he is. Yes. You know, and I remember one time I, you know, a lot of times we guide, we got one guide, two hunters, and depending on the situation, I might go set one guy up alone in, in, a, in a spot and then I'll go take another one somewhere else. And right. I remember we came back and I said, all right, don't move. You know, I'll come back. It might be dark, but I will, I will come back. I'll, I'll just be right here. And he's right. like, and he's like, okay. And sure enough, we walk back and it's in the dark and he's kind of like hooting and hollering like an owl, you know, he's got, <laughs> he's kind of like a little nervous. So yeah. me, me and his buddy are just kind of chuckling a little bit, you know, as we're walking back up to him, we kind of like snuck up on him, like half scare him. Cause he's like, let's scare him. Let's scare him. Like, okay, he's your friend. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. If you want to play this joke, we'll go for it. I'll, I'll you know, 100%. Right. And uh, so we kind of snuck up on him. We didn't turn headlights on and, yeah, we snuck right up on him and scared him. And uh, he he told me that like later on he goes he goes I got nervous. He goes I actually left and I tried to walk out to the road because like there's this there's a main like two track you know ATV trail that we use and we run horses on and things like that. And he's yep. like I tried to find that road and I started walking down the hill and I was like well, if you walk down the hill you ain't gonna find that road. And he goes yeah I know. <laughs> <laughs> he goes I tried. Yeah, yeah, jeez. <laughs> You know, yeah. and, and I was like, it's like, that's why you got to stay where you're at, man. I said, I said, you know, he goes, he goes, luck. He's like, I'm glad I found my way back. He goes, because right. he's like, there was a second there. I was almost lost. And I, yeah. was, like, I was like, yeah, I was like, you need, I was like, stay put 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Well, they can blow an opportunity that way too. The bull might be coming in silent and they try to move. And first thing you know, he takes off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, there's just so much things that go wrong when you, when, when you, when you start moving like that, I mean, just, yep. yeah, you never know. But um, I'm going to say, you want to kind of jump over a little bit and talk some trout here for a little bit since uh, even sure. though it's, yeah, you know, it's winter, but this next thing coming up. Yeah. So for your, your, your trips, are they day trips or are you, are you backcountry stuff or how's that work? Um, basically our trips are, you know, I'm going to say probably the shortest because of our remote location. I mean, we are, I want to say we're like 35, 36 miles off the closest paved road. Um, we're a ways back mm -hmm. and, you know, in, into the Southern end of the flat tops wilderness. So most of our trips are going to be um, the shortest, I would say two days of fishing. Maybe they spend two or three nights. Mm -hmm. I don't know what they want to do if they're staying at the lodge, but we've got lodge based trips where, 
you know, it's a really nice facility. There's individual cabins. You've got your own bathroom and sink, although the water's cold in most of those. But there is a hot water shower. Um, you know, there's actually a couple of hot water showers. Um, there's a big lodge facility with a really nice big um, guest room with a big cobblestone fireplace, a dining area. They got a great cook. Um, she actually, I think in the last few years, she graduated from the culinary and she does an outstanding yeah. job. Yeah. It's a good thing yeah. I burn a lot of calories when I'm up there because right. you know, I like to eat. But uh, yeah, so we do the, you know, we do trips at a lodge and typically they're two to three days. Um, and then we also have some remote camps, you know, up and down river from the lodge. And uh, these can be anywhere from a couple hours to maybe even a three hour horseback ride where we've got wall tents set up. And um, depending on the group, we'll bring the size of the group, we'll even bring a cook in for those. And the nice thing about that is for people that don't care about the horse experience, you know, you do get a lot more fishing time. You know, you can start mm -hmm. early in the morning and you can fish, you know, later into the evening. Of course, I find with wilderness fly fishing, the best fishing can be from mid-afternoon, you know, right through to dusk. You know, early morning sometimes you'll catch fish, um, certainly on stuff underneath the water. But a lot of guys get off on dry fly fishing, which we have some exceptional dry fly fishing. Um, and that tends, doesn't start to pick up a lot of times till later in the morning, sometimes early afternoon, mm -hmm. of course, later in the day, early, even like from four o'clock till dusk is just crazy. Sometimes the yeah, water starts boiling about that time. Oh yeah. It's, it's nuts. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you're mainly fishing for what cutties and brookies or. Yeah. The, uh, the river we fish on, which is a tributary to the white river. Um, you know, it's brookies, it's cuts. Um, there are rainbows. Um, as well. And I have heard guys, although I have personally not caught one, um, but I have heard that there are some browns that have made it up from the lower end of the White River into the, you know, at least some of the waters down below our lodge. But mm -hmm. you know, brookies, rainbows, and cuts are the main thing. And depending on you, what you catch is upriver, we tend to catch all cuts and brookies, um, but some really nice ones. And then downriver, there's some bigger rainbows that we run into, particularly for wilderness fly fishing. Yeah. Yeah, as far as um, like when you say bigger fish, I mean, what are we talking? Like talking about like twenty inches? Or are you talking? Oh yeah, yeah. Really? There, in fact, we had a guy that this this guy was uh, staying at the lodge, and he we got there's a picture of it out on our website. He caught a rainbow last year. I want to say it was six and a half pounds, twenty seven inches. Wow. Now you don't catch them like that every no. day. I'm trying to say that, but you know, down river from our lodge in some of those areas and some of the pools, it's really majestic trout water. It is not uncommon to catch rainbows, 18, 20, 22, even 24 inches long. You know, that's not uncommon. We don't catch them every day, but they're mm -hmm. there. So, I mean, so you got to have a kind of like a, I want to say fairly bigger size piece of water. Like how big's the water? Like how wide's a, you know? Um, you know, I'm going to call, I would call it more of a, a medium sized river, but for backcountry, it's, 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 you know, it's decent size, particularly as you go down river, mm -hmm. um, you know, it can be from up river. Some of the stuff is only 50 foot, but it can be hundred foot. Wow. You know, yeah. that's a medium. lot of water than I'm picturing in my head. Yeah. To be honest. Right. Yeah. Yep. There's some really nice water. Yeah. And you know, where we're operating, they've, they've got almost 20 miles of river to fish. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you got no limits there. Yeah. You, you, no, it's crazy it'll it'll take you a week more or more to fish all 20 miles right yeah yeah absolutely do you ever float it at all or is it all just off of wade trips 
it's it's way trips you know and and um you know it's the kind of river where you know for me personally of course I, not that many companies make them but i've got an older pair of orvis half waders that i find those to be ideal of course i got long legs but <laughs> <laughs> but um you know in the cooler you know typically you know we get operating around the third week in june is when we start operating mm -hmm. river starts becoming fishable you know around that time Although, of course, it's still moving and the runoff is finishing off. But, you know, so using waders that time of year. But once you get into July, you know, middle part of July through the summer, you know, wet wading is definitely an option, mm. you know. Um, and a lot of people like to do that, you know. Of course, depending on the size of the group, we'll bring a pack animal. We can throw waders in there. We can throw, you know, vests or, you know, backpacks, whatever. And bring in whatever they need and you know we typically take off we're taking off from the lodge we've got we leave uh leave early in the morning we've got lunch packed and we're out there for the day and get them back you know whatever time they want to get back and plan dinner time around that so yeah so you're kind of going back up here a little bit about uh, the dry fly fishing like what kind of hatches are you fishing like what, what kind of dry flies are you throwing or are you just throwing like a, just, um, just chucking an atoms be, out there <laughs> yeah it's going to be cave you know caddis and mayflies those are the predominant ones of course okay. One thing that I will say is, is that, you know, once things get cooking towards the end of July, I mean, the grasshopper fishing throughout the middle part of the day, mm. it's an awesome way to fish. And um, we're really big on fishing dry droppers, you know, using, you know, sometimes a bigger grasshopper pattern on top or something that kind of imitates that. It could be mm -hmm. a stimulator, could be a... Um, some big you know, foam bug with some color on it and some, yeah, foam some rubber bug legs, and, yeah. And then running a small nymph underneath it and depending on the water clarity and, and depth of the water, you know, beaded or non-beaded, you know, and, and then downriver sometimes in some of those bigger deep pools, um, fishing streamers, stripping streamers can be a great way to get into those bigger fish. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now do you find you catch those bigger fish more in the latter part of the day, like when it's darker or, um, you know, I'm going to say that it, Typically, yeah, it can be it can be later in the afternoon, but mm -hmm. you know I've seen it happen during the middle part of the day too. You know, yeah. sometimes when they get really aggressive, um, you hit those days where, you know, they're if you're catching them on on the surface and with your dropper underneath, it can be pretty much nonstop action. Yeah. So, how often do you kind of have like brand new fly fishers or people come there pretty experienced? Um, we get a really healthy mixture of both. Um, in fact, one of the things that I've, I've been part of the Orvis Pro program for about 12 or 13, I guess probably 13 years now. And um, not only did that help me boost my skills when going to some of their guide rendezvous, but... Yeah, it goes back to the whole training thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they do a great job of, teach, of teaching you how to teach. And I've, I've had some mentors, too, that have helped me a lot in that. That One is a longtime Orvis employee, a guy by the name of Hutch Hutchinson. Another guy who I met through Orvis has been guiding for like 50 years in Vail, a guy by the name of Jim Phillips. Those people help me a lot on both ends of that. So what I'm getting at is, is that I really enjoy with working with um, folks new to fly fishing, um, sometimes as much or more as going with experienced people, um, because just the rewards from that can be fun. And, and to be honest with you, we've got the kind of river that in places to take these people that are new, that it's not hard to get them into fish. Yeah. First day they get there, you spend a little time on the lawn, work on some casting. Maybe during happy hour, you show them how to tie some knots, 
And then the next day you're off and going and you start doing it. And before you know it, they're catching fish and just having a blast. So, but we get it. We get a good mixture of both. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I think it's probably one of the biggest things about somebody who's just learning to fly fish is to get them on fish right? and, and yes. build that confidence in that, in that sense that like, okay, this is fly yep. fishing can be very technical and people tend, I think, to make it more difficult than it actually is. Yeah. That's, a, that's a really great point. You know, back when I first started getting interested in it, you know, it was deemed as technical and there was kind of like some, you know, hierarchy, if you will, around that of spin fishermen versus fly fishermen, but that's all went away. In fact, we see a huge influx of women fly fishermen and we got a lot of women that come to the lodge, like to fish, like to ride horses. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you're definitely correct in that, that it's not, it's not that technical, you know, I mean, I tell people, hey, you know, you don't need to know the names of the bugs. All you need to know is size, shape, and color. And you're good <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. that's a good point there. I mean, there's so many people that get caught up in which hatch it is and, you know, right. and, and mimicking. But, yeah, you just got to look at the water and be like, okay, well, that bug's about this size. It's this color. And yeah. I look in my fly right. box and I find one that looks about the same, and that's probably going to work. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, that's crazy. Fishing can be so simple. So, um I guess I want to talk a little about gear. Um, I guess we can talk even hunting gear, even fishing gear, kind of combine the two. Um, over your years, are there are there pieces of gear that you've seen like evolved and like you no longer use, or, or pieces of gear that like you no longer just you're like, man, I used to carry that and I just don't have a need for it anymore, or anything like that, or pieces of gear that uh, that you can't go without, or probably some of the big ones. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, there's been a ton of, and I'm a gear freak, like mm -hmm. most guys, I, I love gear. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, my wife, she gets upset with me sometimes, you know, cause I'm always looking at the latest and greatest, but you know, I, I feel that's part of my job, but you know, first, if you talk about hunting, you know, you look at the stuff like the optics that we have available to us, you know, I mean, not only the clarity, of the glass, um, the strength and power of these things, the ability to be able to hold them steady. I mean, my personal choice with optics is I've got a pair of Vortex Razor, Razor HDs and a 12 by 50 and mm -hmm. no problem this thing steady. And then the other thing is they're light and they're compact to carry, you know? So certainly stuff like optics is a big thing. And these vinyl harnesses, you can carry them around in, you know, if we talk about camping gear that can be applicable to um, both hunting and fishing, you know, the lightweight tents, um, even the, some of the TPs I talked about earlier, you know, that offer the ability to, to shed a lot of weight, but they're still bulletproof for weather. The sleeping bags and ground pads that are out there today, they're far more, you know, uh, you know, compact and, and packable and, and light in weight to be able to carry, which of course that, that helps with, you don't have to, you know, be a bull to carry this stuff if you want to go get in for a couple of miles or carry so it on. What, what, uh, what sleeping pad and, 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 and uh, sleeping bag are you running right now? I'm running um, Big Agnes. I really like Big Agnes. In fact, that's what I use. Okay. I mean, the integrated system where the pad fits down inside the bottom of the bag mm -hmm. is really nice because you're not worried about rolling off of it. And they've got pads that, you know, are good. Some are good for summer use. Some are good for three season and summer four. You know, if somebody's on a budget, I would encourage you to spend the money and get the four season pad because mm -hmm. then you've got a pad that will work for you anytime. Of the yeah, year. you're buying one and not two. Right. Yep. So, uh, you know, 
as far as uh, and then of course some of the stoves that are out there now you know i mean jet boil msr you know uh, camp chef they all make really highly packable stoves that do a great job don't use much fuel not like the old days when i started this stuff carrying white fuel and carrying a stove that used it and mm-hmm. the fire concerns about that and running out of fuel and everything else um you know and then probably the next thing i would talk about on the hunting end of things is uh you know the calls that are available you know um there's a lot of great calls out there i am very partial to phelps game calls um simply because that i find that their diaphragms and i've had this problem a lot over the years when i first started out you know calling elk i would get a diaphragm that i really like eventually they get stretched out they wear out you got to mm-hmm. open a new package you go buy the same darn call and you open it and you're immediately disappointed with the sound you get out of it. well I found since I moved to Phelps, I can open a brand new call and I know that I'm going to, I know for a fact, I'm going to get the same sound out of it. Things like their new aluminum bugle tube. It's pricey. You don't want to leave it. (laughs) You don't want to leave it back in the woods, but I'm going to tell you the sound that comes out of that thing is crazy good. Um, Yeah. I think that's a a big thing to talk about with calls is is the consistency. I mean, I'll I'll see that a lot, even with like with turkey calls, like I'll I'll try and, I'll try and buy a brand of call and, and then I'm like, all right, well, all right. I ran that for the season. It's all stretched out. Let me buy another one. And I put it in and I'm like, well, this just doesn't even sound like it did. Right. The other thing cool about those guys, if you need help, you can reach out to them. They got a lot of great stuff on YouTube too. To oh, help yeah. you. Yep. Great customer um, service there. Talk about fishing, you know, and uh, what I should say about all this gear is, is that depending on what your budget is, I think that's one of the best things going nowadays is that to use it used to be to get quality gear that would perform well in the field. You had to spend a lot of money on some of this stuff. And I think that that has gotten better where I'm not saying that this stuff is cheap, but you know, like you take fly rods, for example, there are some inexpensive fly rods out there that are really, really good. I mean, one of the ones that comes to mind for me, although I'm not going to say it's cheap, but Orvis is clear water. Rod. Oh yeah. I, mean, I, have, I have one. Yeah. I mean, those things are just, they're bulletproof and the the casting stroke is so nice on them and you know, yeah, it's going to cost you, I don't know what they run now, maybe 225 or 250 bucks full retail, but it comes with their unconditional 25 year warranty. So if you slam that thing in your car door, they're going to fix it or replace it. Or Um, or mule steps on it or. (laughs) Yeah, whatever, you know, or you, you know, you break it. I, I mean, I've broken rods, some of the reels that are out there, the line. So, um, you know, definitely, uh, that stuff has, has improved a lot. Um, you know, moving into clothing, um, and personal gear, you know, for both hunting and fishing, I think that we've seen a great evolution of that. And again, you know, depending on what your budget can afford, you know, obviously the highest end stuff is, is bulletproof and it lasts forever. So if you can afford it, it's great, but not everybody can, but Mm -hmm. rain gear that's out there, the layering systems that's out there, you know, in terms of. You know, I really like Moreno wool, um, you know, for colder weather. Um, I find that if I'm in the back country, I can wear the same stuff all week long and it doesn't, it doesn't get smelly mm-hmm. like some of the stuff that used to, um, you know, with fishing, you know, some of the wet wading pants where you can zip them off the hike in, put the pants back on, you know, they get wet, they dry very quickly. You know, the wet wading boots or hybrid boots where you can use them for hiking or for using with your waders mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, it's just awesome, you know, and and for the layering clothing, you know, some of this 
new synthetic down or down stuff that they have come out with the new down stuff that's treated where it won't absorb water. I mean, that stuff is highly packable, weighs nothing. So there's no reason not to carry it in your pack. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just awesome. And then probably the last thing I'll talk about there is, uh, is, uh, backpacks you look at for hunting, you know, when I first started hunting elk, you know, I had a day pack and then I had a frame pack back at my camp and you kill something and you know, Maybe I might throw some meat in my day pack, but it was ugly to carry and mm -hmm. not very comfortable and have to go back and get a frame pack to pack quarters. Well, now there's some great packs out there um, that enable you that you can squish them down good, cinch them down good during the day when you're hunting. You kill something, you, you know, there's a way that you can slide the quarter behind your bag and cinch it all down. And yeah, some of these can be expensive, but I'm going to say that the top brands, the, there's a lifetime warranty on them. And then the other thing is don't rule out, you know, if your budget can't quite swing it, you know, some of the stuff like XO or QU or, you know, of course there's Kafaro probably is at the highest end of the food chains in mm -hmm. terms of price. Um, but don't rule out buying this stuff used. There's a lot of guys that are always looking for something bigger and better. And you can pick up some great deals on some of this stuff used on any equipment, actually, you know, whether it be eBay or Facebook marketplace or wherever, um, you know, is a great way. Uh, to pick up some of that stuff. And then uh, probably the last piece I'll mention here is, um, you know, of course, people think about electronics and apps. That's really changed the game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, actually have, I actually have both positive and negative. There's been times where OnX has been awesome to me. You know, I killed an antelope for a few years ago in an area where there was a lot of private and knowing where I could shoot and when I could shoot, you know, um, OnX was a game changer for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, Onyx has enabled a lot of people to venture into country they never would have ventured into before. Yeah, it you gives know, that level of confidence and comfort to somebody like, okay, oh, yeah. if I got if, yeah. if I save this map and on my phone, as long as I got power, I can find my way back to the truck. Where a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to go too far because I don't want to get lost. Yeah, or even scouting from home, you know, of course, yeah. the stuff we learned at the elk camp. Yep. And then the, the Garmin inReach is another game changer where now, you know, there's no reason that. You know, and particularly at my age, I, I carry one because if something happens, I want to be able to get notify somebody and get help, you know, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but. so kind of touch back a little bit, just questions on your hunting gear real fast. Um, when Obviously, you're not going to be getting too cold in the, in the archery season, but how do you stay warm? What, what's kind of like your layering system to stay warm in, in, the, in, the, in the late rifle seasons? Okay. So I start with um, with a Moreno base layer, and that's generally a mid-weight layer. And the reason I go mid-weight is because, you know, again, a lot of times I'm still doing, you know, a fair amount of hiking and in snow. You don't even have to go that far. And you generate hot body heat. So I've got a Moreno wool next to my skin. And then, you know, I would go with uh, perhaps some kind of synthetic, um, stretchy kind of uh, hunting shirt. You know, both QU, Sitka makes some, mm -hmm. First Light makes some, some of that stuff that's more of a synthetic but breathable over top of that Moreno. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's going to help keep me warm. And then, uh, and then, you know, by the same token, when my temperature elevates, it's going to help me breathe. And then, you know, for hiking over top of that, I would wear a saw, I typically wear a soft shell. Um, the soft shell jackets, you know, they're, they're water resistant. Um, you know, they also tend to have, you know, a lot of the high tech features 
that I look for in clothing with venting, you know, armpit vents. Um, I definitely want those. So if I do start to get hot, I can unzip my unzip my vents and, and, and cool off. And then, you know, so that would be what I would be wearing on the move. You know, down below, I'm going to have, again, a Moreno base layer. I tend to like, uh, I know QU and First Light make them. I'm not sure about uh, Sitka or not. They, they may. But I like these new uh, bottom base layers where they zip off. So you can put them on and off without taking your boots on. That's mm. that's huge. Yeah, you can just drop your pants and do a full zip on each side. Yeah, right. Because sometimes early morning you want them on, and you go in midday, the temperature warms up, you take them off. Yeah. But I've got my pants on, um, you know, over top of a merino base layer, and then when I get to where I'm hunting, and I would vary those pants by cold weather. Cold weather, I'm wearing the the stuff that's going to be heavier. Then when I get to my hunting spot, I typically have a uh, a down parka or a puffy as they're called now mm-hmm. Throw top a good heavyweight one still it compresses down very small in my pack and i've even got the pants so when it's really cold oh. um, i'm putting those pants on i'm putting that jacket on you know maybe i got a pair of down mittens in there too i take off my gloves that i hiked in you know even got some pocket hand warmers and i can hang out there for quite a while you know of course if the wind is blowing you know that might shorten me and father time can, has shortened my ability to deal with the cold from when I was younger. But with that kind of system, I'm I'm good to some pretty cold temps and, and can last the day, the day. Yeah, I kind of run somewhat similar, but I haven't I haven't graduated the puffy pants yet. And like that's kind of like the next thing that, right. that I'm really looking into to, to catch that, that extra warmth is, is the puffy pants. Probably the other thing we didn't mention is is uh, on the feet. And so, mm. you know, in archery season, I tend to, you know, I can stuff that's not insulated, obviously. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm always going to have some kind of vortex or equivalency, you know, boot, um, you know, that's going to keep my feet dry. Um, during the cold rifle seasons, I tend to use a 200, 200 uh, grams of Thinsulate is enough for me to keep my feet warm. Of course, I do use them, and I do this all year long. I use gaiters. I mean, gaiters are going to keep your feet drier. They're going to keep your bottom of your pants drier, and they're going to keep your feet warm. You don't have to worry about if you're crossing a creek, you know, if you go over top of your boots for a few seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, so gaiters are definitely a must. You know, of course, there are some really good felt line leather packs out there, rubber bottom leather upper packs that Schnee makes and, and Kenetrek makes. Um, the only time when I tend to use those is when I'm doing a horseback hunt in really cold weather where it's say it's down in the low teens to maybe close to zero and you're riding in and out in the dark mm-hmm. even though they're more awkward to hike in they kind of be the only way that if you're riding on horseback you're going to keep your feet warm you know yeah i was just gonna, I was just gonna say when you're riding or even hunting like what what kind of brand of boot are you do you typically seems to fit you best because it's like some people you know are running crispy some people run schnee some people run in you know, kind yep. of tracks like it, but I, I think a lot of people can't say, Oh, one boot's better than the other. It's just all it's going to fit your foot the best. Yeah. I would, I would absolutely agree with that. Whether you've got a wide foot, a narrow foot, high arch, flat arch, you know, the other thing that can ch- be a game changer is the insoles that are out there. Um, I happen to use one called Protalis. I find they really work well for me, keep the wear and tear off my body. There's stuff that's more expensive. There's stuff that's less like super feet. I've used those before, but you know, currently I find that um, I'm running for archery season. And I got to tell you that I like them better. I even used them first rifle this year. 
because the weather was warmer, I was fine. I'm running the new crispy uh, altitude GTX. Okay. That boot is for me. I've got a little bit of an hour or foot. Um, they, I think they may make a wide too. So guys that need a, a wider boot, you, you still could check them out. But you know, um, I'm running those during archery, and then uh, for a first rifle this year. I bought a pair of, they had them on sale and I took a chance because I never ran them before, but I have a pair of the Schnee Bear Trap and a 200 Thinsulate. And I got to tell you, I really like them. They kept my feet warm and it was zero every morning when mm -hmm. we went out. Nice. Of course, I had gators on, but um, they kept my feet warm. They were comfortable to hike in. And, uh, you know, the other thing I'll talk about is, is that, you know, when I was younger, and of course I carried a lot more body weight, a lot more muscle weight then, you know, I tended to like a stiffer boot stiffer sole boot and these boots now they come in all different stiffnesses so you have to pay attention to that and i would highly recommend if you can you know going to a place where you can try them on and, and walk around the store in them worst case if you're going to order boots over the internet you know make sure that you have an understanding with who you're ordering from that you get them on you wear them in your house and you don't like them you can send them back because boot stiffness um definitely can make a difference i can't wear a real stiff boot anymore so the flex range that I look for, and again, the flex range goes from one to five, five being the stiffest. Mm -hmm. I like something in the two to two and a half range is what seems to work well for me. But the good news with these new boots now is that I found with these boots that aren't as stiff, I still get great support for hiking in really steep, gnarly terrain and even packing heavy loads. You know, I pack quarters, um, both first rifle and third rifle. You know, with the the crispy boots and the Schnee boots that I had on, and I never felt insecure or anything like that. They carried the weight just fine. So, um, you know, some great stuff out there. You just need to go try some stuff on and find out where it works for you. Obviously, Sportsman Shows is another place where you can go do that. You know, try to pick a show that has the top brands. Um, you know, I know you guys got a good one back your way. Mm -hmm. In Salt Lake City, the the – the Western Hunter Expo in Salt Lake. Oh yeah, that's that's probably my favorite for gear because all the major gear manufacturers will be there, and there's a lot of great people there to talk to and learn from. Yeah, it's funny that you that that you talked about the the flex rating on the boots. Uh, I think that's a, a common thing that a lot of people overlook uh, in in yeah. terms of because like you're saying, sometimes I find that if you run a stiffer sole, when you're cutting in to that side hill. Because you know, you're basically walking on the edges of your feet. You yes. Know? You know, that it, I, I would say, like, sometimes, like, man, I need ski boots to, like, go across this <laughs> yeah. thing because, like, yep. you're going to, you have to cut in so hard sometimes. Yes. But uh, it's good to hear that you found a boot that is a little more flex, but you can still cut oh, yeah. in, into that edge. And, and here's another thing to think about with boot flexes. Of course, some guys are big enough and strong enough that they can flex any boot. So this would not be an issue. But, Take a later guy that maybe is trying to go with a real stiff boot. It can make it more challenging to walk quiet when you start to think about that. With the flex in the sole, you can control, you know, that weight pressure going down and, you know, because of the flex in the boot. Mm -hmm. um, so it can make a difference there too in, in being able to sneak around and stalk a little bit better. Yeah, that's, that's something I completely didn't even think about. <laughs> but yeah, but, true 100%. Yeah. But the, yeah, um couple more questions here for you uh as far as if you were to give advice to somebody who wanted to become a guide kind of what would you what would you pass on to them 
Um, for somebody that wanted to be a guide, you know, I'd say that, uh, you know, some of the real key things to keep in mind is that, you know, it, it really doesn't matter how good a hunter you are in terms of your skills and physical abilities. You're going to need to adapt to that of your clients and always keeping that in mind, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, uh, Again, you know, it's, it's, it's your job to really make it happen for that person. You want to make it fun. Um, you want to make it a lifetime experience, whether you kill something or you don't. You want to think about stuff like capturing the memories with photos and stuff like that so you can share them with your client at the end of the hunt. And, uh, you know, again, keeping in mind that a lot of these people that sign up for guided trips, they're not capable of doing it on themselves, and you got to realize that. And it's your job to make sure they have a good time. Um you know, keeping in mind that safety is number one, you know, this gets back to the stuff about the pressure to deliver a shot opportunity, you know, to find animals and stuff, you know, you don't want to take somebody outside their physical ability. It's, it's fair as the week goes on to push them. And most guys are up for that or gals are up for that, but you don't want to put them in a circumstance where you jeopardize safety and somebody gets hurt. Um, you know, some of the other tips that I would offer is, um, and this is really a key one is that because I've seen this over the years is that somebody goes to work new in an operation as a guide, you know, and they've got a great set of skills. Let's say they can hunt, they can call, they, they know where to find animals. They know how to get to them. But, you know, you got to remember that in these operations, your job is going to be to be more than just a guide. You need to look to better yourself on all fronts. You need to be able to improve your horsemanship. You need to learn how to pack a little bit. You know, you may even need to learn how to cook a little bit. And also for some, get along with people because this is a people-oriented job. You're you're the face to the client for your operation. Them having a good time is largely dependent upon you, you know, whether that be how you conduct yourself and making sure that everything's right. You know, if you're going into a remote camp, I like to make sure I know what's going to be back there and, you know, to the best of my ability. So I'm not surprised when I get back there and find I need something. Um... If I've got an animal that's maybe above my client's ability, you know, I'm going to bring that attention to whoever my head wrangler is or to the owner and swap out the stock, you know, uh, because the key thing, you know, on all this stuff is that, you know, as you go into particularly uh, your first experiences is one of the things that you want to have a communicate open dialogue with your client is, is, is this trip meeting their expectation? And you want to have that, discussion during the experience you don't so that if there are things that they're not happy with you have an opportunity to fix it and send your client home you know a happy camper versus they go home after the experience and all of a sudden you got a bad review out on the internet or out on your website um you know and then probably just a couple other things that have really worked for me over the years is that i keep a diary each season whether it be hunting or fishing you know, and I don't do it day by day, but, you know, I try to sit down at the end of the season like now and I think about, well, what was really working for me well? What were areas that I was running into animals or catching fish? What was working that particular day? Because when you run into dry periods, whether it be hunting or fishing, a lot of times I'll pull out my notes at night when I'm back at camp and go over some things and say, oh, yeah, maybe I need to try that tomorrow. Maybe I need to go here tomorrow, you know, that kind of thing. And then, you know, last but not least, I would say really focusing an effort that I don't care how good somebody is during the off season, you really want to look at, you know, do some assessment about 
How can I better myself? What are areas that I can get better in? What are new things I want to learn? I mean, you know, that's that's something. And I don't care if that's calling, you know, elk hunting strategies, you know, getting yourself wired into some of these elk hunting industry networks. You know, a lot of these guys that attend shows that are out there on YouTube, you don't even have to know them personally, but you can send notes, you can send emails and contact these guys, follow them on the internet, like following. I mean, Dirk is a great guy. I mean, I love the guy. I've learned so much from him following the bugler out there on Instagram. Um, he's a guy that he's going to treat you like he's known you your whole life, you know? Yeah. He's a solid dude. Right. So you want to live the dream all year long. That's basically what it boils down to and never stop and, and look for opportunities to improve yourself. Yeah. Hey man, I think that's a great spot to end it. So, but before we sign off, where can, uh, where can everybody find you? Internet, Facebook, I'm out there on Facebook, Bob Twilliger. I'm also out there on Instagram, Bob T 756. Feel free to add me as a friend. I'd be glad to share with you what I know. Um, I do a lot of that already with guys looking for, you know, tips on elk hunting or calling or whatnot, you know, and um, fishing, what have you, even recommendations on gear. I'll, I'll give you my honest opinion on what's out there. You know, like I said, there's a lot of great gear out there and, what it boils down to, you know, is what's going to fit you best and what what's within your budget. Yeah, 100%. Well, Bob, thanks for coming on, man. Uh, I even learned some more stuff from you, so it was all good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, thanks. I, I enjoyed it. I appreciate the invite, and uh, I'm here for you anytime. So. Right, thank you.